you got your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you're a guest here with us this morning, we're in a series walking through the book of Colossians, but the title of the series is Above All, and, and it's really pointed at as Christ is above all, but I want to read the text here to begin uh, today. 124. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to pray, and then we're going to do a short video, and the video is a parody on the issue of, I think, what's crept into the church, this idea of consumerism. So let me just pray, though, to begin here. Father, I do want to invite you into this place, and I pray that as we walk through this, these couple verses, that you would stir us and help us to understand what it means to live in light of a world that's broken. So I just would, would invite you and your spirit to, to reign in this place and to, to work on each of our lives. These things we pray in your name. Amen. Nancy. That video points to an issue within the church, especially within the United States. And it's the issue of consumerism. Consumerism is the idea that really everything needs to be about us. And it really is a reflection, I think, though, of our culture. I think the hard truth is it's watered down what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But if you were to ask the question, what do people really want? And maybe... Maybe put it this way, the average Christian. If you're following along in the outline, I said it this way. What does the average Christian really want? And I think three things. Comfort, convenience, and that word security. See, functionally though, that's the American dream. I think those we could maybe add pleasure in there as well. But recognize that those three words, there is another issue that kind of smacks into them. That, that kind of pushes back at those. And if you, if you just look at the word, world as it is, and some of the statistics even, I don't know if you realize it, people right now, there is more loneliness with people now than ever before when they interview them. There is relationships that are breaking down like at no other time in history. Society is breaking down. And just think about five years ago, what was sin is now a basic right. You see things changing. This week, I happened to listen to a podcast for a little while by a guy by the name of Oz Guinness. I don't know if any of you know that name. He's a, a philosopher, a writer. I've heard him live at a conference here. But he was talking about the country kind of in a, in a prophetic way. And, and he said that we are close to a breaking point in, this, in the United States and he thinks that we're just about to go over the edge in a way that will never return to the same place. 
Matter of fact, he, he was one of the topics was the incivility. It just the way that people are talking and relating with each other. They're just not civil anymore. And he said this, the toothpaste is out of the tube in that area. And he does not think it's going to get back, put back in. So we live in a world that's cruel. It's flat out evil. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the gal who got into a car thinking she was going, you know, heading into an Uber car, and the guy drives off and kills her. Evil is alive and well. It's picking up pace. But then you throw in things like, even the normal challenges of physical and the pain and the suffering in that area. You know, I, I think back to my mom and dad. My dad got Alzheimer's. The first signs of it was like 62, 63 years of age. He went on to live about another seven years. And do we realize that those things cause suffering as well? My mom, I could say this, she suffered as a result of dad's Alzheimer's. And many of you have gone through that disease. It's a horrible disease. And my mom, a little few years later, ended up getting kidney cancer and passing away because of that. See, brokenness is functionally around all of us in many different areas. And yet, as a world and even as people of faith, we are obsessed with comfort, convenience, security. So let me put up a question in light of that. What is expected for a Christ follower to live in this world that's broken so that we represent Christ well? How do we navigate this world? Or do we just give up and go the way of the culture and go with the flow? Folks, Things are breaking down. And I believe this. I think Christ expects us to live differently in this world. Maybe the word countercultural, I, I think, is a word that fits. To live different in such a way that people look at us as a follower of Jesus and say, the world is broken, but you have hope. You have hope. Let me jump into the text here. And by the way, this isn't necessarily a feel-good passage that we hit today. This letter was written to a church where this church understand they had to live different in that culture. Understand the persecution. The Roman culture hated the Christians. And this church begins to grow and people come to faith and they recognize that they looked at this group of people and they said, why in the world are you following a dead man? That was part of their reputation. And yet in the midst of it, people looked at them and go, you really care for each other. But people, the world was pushing back at them. And Paul is writing to encourage them, to give encouragement in the sense where continue to live this way in the world. Live counterculturally. Don't give in to the world's way of thinking. But I think here's the challenge us. Even when we use the word countercultural, I don't know about you, but for me growing up, when I, if that was thrown at me when I was younger, here's where I, I think what I was taught. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with those that might do. That was kind of, avoid those people. Huddle up as a church. 
live separately from the world, we go, is that really what Paul tells us as we walk in a broken world? And I go, no. He's saying that's not countercultural. Let's jump into verse 24. Look how it reads. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Paul is inviting them to walk a path. And did you catch the word in there, this word suffering? Suffering. And then he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Who in their right mind would connect suffering and rejoicing together? You know, those words just don't fit. Now, realize as we walk through this, Paul is a mentor for us. He's coming and teaching us as we look at this letter how he walked is to be applied to our lives as well as a follower of Christ. And frankly, to live differently than the rest of the world in this area. I think he knows this, that if one really walks with Jesus, walks with Christ, there is always the potential for suffering or at the minimum for condemnation. And he's saying, be ready. But I need to first go after a phrase here. You maybe saw this. You go, what is lacking in Christ's affliction? And you, people point to this phrase and go, does that mean that when Christ died, he didn't suffer enough? And Paul has to come back and suffer some more to finish it? And you go, no, that, that's not what that means. I want to put up the message here. That's a paraphrased version. It's almost an interpretation of this one. But look at what G- Eugene Peterson wrote. I want you to know how glad I am that it's me sitting in here in this jail and not you. There's a lot of suffering to be entered into this world, the kind of suffering Christ takes on. I welcome the chance to take my share in the church's part of that suffering. When I became a servant in this church, I experienced this suffering as a sheer gift. God's way of helping me serve you, laying out the whole truth. Christ's suffering was sufficient. When he said, it is finished, he suffered enough. So that's not what that means. But I don't know if you caught the flavor of the message. There's something that has to do with us, and Paul understood it that way. And I want to show you from a commentary from A.T. Robertson. Look at what he writes. It's now Paul's turn at bat to use a baseball figure. Christ at his turn... The grandest of all has suffered for us all in a sense not true of anyone else. And yet Christ did not cause suffering to cease. There is plenty left for Paul and for each of us. I take my turn in filling up. I take my turn in suffering. Each one of us takes our turn in suffering for our covenant partner, Christ Jesus, for the world hated him, and it will likewise hate us. So don't act so surprised. Are we catching this reality? It just might be our turn to suffer as we live in the United States. I really think so. 
in the real sense, the sufferings, though, are a continuation of what the world did to Christ. They did not end. Now, Jesus is no longer physically here, yes, but are we really surprised And do we really understand that there's a battle going on between God and this world and the world wants to throw arrows at God and how they do that is they can throw it at us as followers of Jesus. Matter of fact, it points to hard reality. If you're following along in the sermon notes, number one, I said this way, suffering for the sake of Christ is to be expected and to be the norm. But for us, especially growing up here in the United States, that's not right. That's not fair. We're not supposed to have to suffer. But understand this. There is a biblical doctrine of suffering and trials and tribulation that is woven through all of the New Testament over and over again. And as a follower of Christ, Our primary motive, in light of the hardships of the day, are called to walk with and toward Jesus. And Jesus suffered. And we will walk with him potentially in suffering as well. You know, when I ask parents, um, I've done a number of parenting conferences, and I'll I'll give them a, a sheet to hand out and say, list your top three or four goals that you have for your children. And you know what? Inevitably, this is Christian parents, okay? Inevitably, you know what they always put down as one of those top three, four goals? I want my kids to be happy. Happy. Do you understand that it is such a, that's comfort in this quest for comfort, for security. I got to be happy. So we approach our marriages. I want to be happy. We approach our jobs. If we're not happy there, we got to run to the next job. Do do we catch that? How comfort is just the basis of, uh, it's a right. And yet, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus declared this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He gives a blessing. He pronounces a blessing for those who are slandered falsely on account of his name. So rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. I realize you got to catch something. I got to differentiate between a couple things. This isn't suffering for suffering's sake. I think sometimes people can be martyrs and go, oh, I'm suffering. No, this, that's not what it's about. This is about suffering for Jesus, for the sake of Jesus' name. And then one is blessed and lifted up. You know, Acts chapter 5, again, if you walk through the whole Bible, it says after they were beaten, the apostles left their beaters rejoicing. They rejoice that they've been counted, listen to this, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Counting it worthy. And you go, how do you get there? Let me show you another one, Romans chapter 5. Look what Paul writes here, verse 2. Through him... 
We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because of that, let me just state the obvious here. Point number two here in your notes. We must acknowledge that suffering for his sake is a divine gift. A gift. And some of us go, I don't want it. I don't want it. Listen to Philippians 1.29. I don't have it on the screen. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And by the way, it wasn't just Paul that believed this. Peter as well. He rebuked his readers for, not being, surpri- for being surprised that they're going to suffer. And he goes on and he called it a blessing as well. And he said this, it's an indication that the spirit of the glory of God rests on them by suffering. Now, here again, I want to caution because sometimes I think this, we suffer because of our own sin. We just have to admit that. And that's a completely different category. But there's suffering also for just living in this world. You understand the physical suffering that we go through, that's for the believer and the unbeliever. That's really not what Paul is talking about. But understand this, it still applies in our response even to that. But suffering for the sake of Christ actually can lead to joy. Joy. And if Peter was there, you go, amen. Amen. Let me put up 2 Corinthians 1 on the screen. Look at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's pointing to a certain experience. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the death, sentence of death, but that was to make us rely. Not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. See, Paul is connecting suffering with the purposes of God in bringing them together. To make us rely on him, on God And it leads to actually being blessed. And it can actually lead to even joy, rejoicing in the midst of it. As we depend wholly on God. Do we make Christ above all? Above all. But realize even as this church or even Paul, when you go comfort, safety, security, convenience, that wasn't the issue. Well, let me give you another point there for your notes. I understand this, suffering for Christ pushes us to depend exclusively on God. It invites us to go, walk toward me. Depend on me. Now, here's the challenge. For you that are parents, especially with young kids, 
as you look to the future with your children, the world is more broken than when I was growing up. I, I would say that strongly. I believe that. And as I look at my children, my great-grandchildren, or my children, I don't have any great-grandchildren yet. Okay, I'd be a little too old for that. But my grandchildren even, I think this, they are going to probably have to suffer for the sake of Jesus in ways that I've never, and my generation will never experience. I'm convinced of it. Now, I understand this. United States, that's where we're at. It hasn't gotten here yet. If you go to China, if you go to, you go to India, if you go to Middle East, even in Europe. I remember taking students to Poland and we went to these camps and, and these Polish kids would come to faith. They come to faith and they started attending the church and their parents viewed it as a cult. And they'd get married and lo and behold, the parents would disown the kids because they put their faith in Jesus. They had to suffer of saying, I'm going to walk with Jesus. I don't think we're there yet, but I think it is close. But here's what we got to do. We must begin to connect suffering to the greater spiritual goals of God. It's always connected to the kingdom growing. It's for God's purposes. Now, even though, I, I even look at the... You know, I look at my mom and dad and the suffering physically that they went to. Does that apply to God as well? The answer is yes. I remember giving an article to my mom when she was dying of kidney cancer. And it was written by John Piper. And it, and it said this, don't waste your cancer. And it was a fascinating article. He was spot on. That God takes even that kind of suffering and go, my purpose is... See, are we willing to waste something, but God wants to take and use it and give him glory? But we live in a fallen world, and then when it comes to suffering, afflictions, trials, we go, God, I don't want them. But it leads to a question. On your notes, I said it this way. What happens when suffering occurs and we fail to see the eternal consequences and the result is this, an attitude of bitterness toward God. We hate trials. We hate troubles. We hate affliction. Who likes hard stuff? But when we don't stop and you go, God, what are, where are you in this picture? What do you want? If we don't stop and ask that question, then the opportunity for bitterness and resentment toward God creeps in. Understand, bitterness is rooted in self-love. It's saying this, the suffering, the stuff, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And so what we do, we work for comfort, for security, doing everything we can to get rid of it. See, we must take the long view of suffering, even our trials, and we need to connect it to the purposes of God. And if we don't, God will be cruel. Life will be meaningless. But that's why, folks, that's why he writes this book. It's written for us to be countercultural when it comes to suffering and trials and a hard life. And it actually can lead to joy. 
to joy. See, we must believe that God is working for some purposes, and we may not know what it is quite yet. We may have to look back at some point. We might have to wait even toward heaven and go, that's the reason. Now, I I need to bring you back to another verse, though, that we looked at last week because there's a connection here that I didn't get into. And it's a verse that actually many people look at and go, that's talking about losing your salvation. And you go, it's not. Look at Colossians 1.23. We went over this last week. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That phrase, if you continue in the faith, if you keep walking by faith, and some take that and say, that's about your salvation. I go, no, it's actually pointing toward the transformation in your life, and it's even pointing even farther ahead in the passage about the verses on, these verses on suffering. Paul is recognizing this. It's about moving into the spiritual world and understanding that which we can't see and understand. It's walking by faith and coming to a place where every day our trust in God is growing. It's moving up and up and up. God is good even when hard times come. That God is in control no matter what. But often, we really don't, I don't think we understand this concept of walking by faith. There's an illustration that I use over and over again over the last probably 10, 15 years and how we, at times, we try to manipulate walking by faith. And and here's the illustration. If I took the chairs out and I dug a hole in the middle of this room and I put a bunch of spears in there, You know, fairly deep hole, and these spears where if you jumped into it, you walked into it, you would get hurt. But if I did that to this room, put that hole in the place, and then I did this, I I blacked out all of the light, where it's completely darkness. You've been in a cave where you turn off the lights and you can't even see the hand in front of your face. So if I did that, if this room had a hole and you were in this room and I said this, begin to walk by faith and there's absolutely no light. You know what our faith tends to look like? Rather than beginning to walk around, we go over to the wall and we'll try to find the wall and we'll head over. Oh, I I think I know where the light switch is. And we work to the, oh, now I will walk by faith. That's not faith. We want to know the outcome. If we need to know the outcome, it's not faith. See, it literally faith is walking in the dark, not knowing the outcome. Matter of fact, the stories of faith all through the scriptures, it's the same way. They stepped and made a decision and they move forward in a sense where I'm going to walk toward you, God. I'm going to trust you and it will be by faith. I, I think of Moses It's such a great illustration. You understand, here's a leader. He takes, they estimate it's between five and six million people. Five to six million are leaving Egypt. So he he gathers this crowd up. They're walking out of Egypt. He says, God God tells them, head north, and you're going to turn east, and you go toward toward the Red Sea there. And so six million people in a line. I don't know how long, how many miles that is. But the people in the back of the line, you know, those that 
didn't get their things ready right away. Those are the people that come to church late. You understand, those in the back of the line. And they turn around and they see these dots on the horizon. And they figure it out. It's the Egyptian army. The army's coming for us. And what do they do? They start sending a message through the people and shouting ahead. And I don't, maybe they use those tin cans with the line to, to call them out. They didn't have cell phones. All the way up to the front of the line. And here's Moses walking ahead of these people. And what is he t- saying? Because he had to walk by faith. He goes, keep walking. Let's head toward the Red Sea. Trust God. But Moses, the army's coming. And remember, he gets up to the Red Sea and God tells him, okay, put the stick over the water. And the water divides. Do you really think he was certain of what was going to go on at that point? I go, no. He walked by faith. Those people were called to walk by faith. See, are we willing to do that? And I don't know if you know this, but Jesus over and over again was telling his disciples, walk by faith, trust me. Matter of fact, he throws out this passage. I want to put Matthew 6 on the screen. Look at what it says. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Just walk by faith. But what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is life more than food and the body, more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And you are not of more, are you not of more value than they? 27, and which of you are being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow it's thrown in the oven, will he not more, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. When Christ is above all, when we're going, God, I want your purposes, I want your son's purposes in my life, And when afflictions come, when trials come, we're able to hold up our hands and say, God, you're still good. I don't know the outcome, but I trust you. But there's another issue. I got to end with this last point. Because as Paul looks toward people, he realizes that he's a steward of the truth and for people. Look at number four on your, on your bulletin. I said it this way. Jesus wants us to care more about others spiritually than our physical comfort, convenience, and security. Next week, it's an issue of how do you present others complete in Christ? Paul was his other. He said, it's about others. It's why I'm willing to suffer. It wasn't about him. He was just called to walk by faith. But as he looked at his life, he goes, I've got the message of reconciliation between man and God. I got something they need. 
I don't know, do we realize something here? We, if you know Christ as your Savior, you have been given the message of reconciliation to connect God with people and to help them run to God. See, he was a steward. That word, that, that word is in that text. He's a, the stewardship that he had, both of the gospel, but people as well. Do we know that we have the secret message, the mystery, that word mystery there? Functionally, it's this. It, it, the message, you understand, was hidden, was hidden from the Gentiles. It first went to the Jews. So the mystery was now, it's not just Jews, it's all those other people as well. It's the Greeks. It's the Romans that are persecuting you. It's the Mexicans. It's the Scottish. Even the Swedes. And even Finns can get in now. Any Finnish people here? A few of you. Everyone has access to Jesus Christ through faith. All can find Jesus. That's a stewardship issue with Paul. But look at verse 27. How he summarizes it. Which is Christ in you. In Christ. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. Christ living in you. It's the foundation and the cause of his hope. When he began to trust God, the result was hope. But it's in Christ. Because of Christ. It's the Spirit pouring the Holy Spirit into our lives and giving us hope. Yeah, I think we can shut him off from that. But he wants us to be a people of hope. And he is the hope eternal. Now, you know... I think of a group like this, and I will guarantee you that there's many people here that you are in the midst of trials, you're in the midst of discouragement, and my plea to you today is this, continue to walk by faith. Put your hands up. Don't close them to God. Put your hands up and say, God, I want to trust you. Would you pour your Holy Spirit into me to give me the ability to continue to walk by faith in the dark, not knowing the outcome, and all along seeking him? See, we forget there's purposes in this that we don't understand, but one of those purposes, he's going, come to me, draw near to me. I will draw near to you in the midst of these difficulties. Let me end it with a text that that in many ways is a pinnacle. It's a summary text of what we've been talking about today. It applies to all of us, but look what's true. If we are in Christ, Romans 8, 1, no matter where we are, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is good news. We have been reconciled to Jesus. But look at verse 26 as we live in this world. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Those times when we come and we're discouraged and go, how do you pray? And it says the Spirit is already beginning to work and interceding for us. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words 
And he who searches the hearts knows what is the spirit of the, the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God's in control. The spirit is praying for us. But look at the capstone of this passage, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, as we seek him, as we seek him, all things work together for good for those who have been called according to his purpose. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up here. But understand the criticalness of this truth. As we make Christ above all, he promised to take everything that we're struggling with. We draw near to him. He comes near to us and he meets us and our faith grows. Our trust in him grows and we hold up our palms and go, God, you work and I trust you. Set our minds on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Understand in that verse, all things work together for good. Either that's true or God's a liar. One or the other. That has to be true or it's a flat out lie for those that are seeking Jesus. For those that are seeking Jesus and saying, God, you're in control. Work in me. As you walk through this week, can I implore you to open your hands if you're struggling, open them up and say, God, Lamentations 3 says, mercies are new every morning. Get your feet out of bed and go, God, I need you today. I trust in you today. Work in me. We're going to sing a song just as a response. The title of the song, God is Able. And I go, that is a truth that we got to hold on to when life isn't working well for us. God is able. Let's stand and let's sing.